0: good morning the scripture this morning is romans 3 verses 1 through 20. then what advantage has the jew or what is the value of circumcision much in every way to begin with the jews were entrusted with the oracles of god what if some were unfaithful does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of god by no means let god be true though everyone were a liar as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the very word of God.
1: I was at my neighbor's house and uh, noticed that he was working on a crossword puzzle. I didn't know people actually did those crossword puzzles. But there he was, diligently working through it, and... um. Anybody here do crossword puzzles? Really? Okay. This is sm- smart people that do crossword puzzles. I get it. Um why? Because they're not easy. They're challenging. There's um there's these obstacles that seem impossible to solve, but then you find the right word and it fits. Other kinds of puzzles are like that, right? Just imagine a jigsaw puzzle. People still do jigsaw puzzles. Can you believe it? You pour out that thing. All those pieces go everywhere. It's overwhelming, and yet diligently trying to match up pieces, get them to fit, see the relationships. All of us actually are attracted to puzzles in some way. There's something that's that's quite a draw about trying to solve dilemmas, solve problems. If if you're into mystery novels, then you like puzzles. Um, it, life is full of all kinds of complexities, mysteries that seem impossible, and then just at the right time, things go together. The problem is solved. This is exciting. We all like puzzles in one way or the other. Puzzles help us see relationships between things that at first maybe don't seem like there is any relationship at all. But when they go together, something beautiful emerges. Something exciting comes before our eyes. When we think about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we actually encounter various puzzles Things that don't seem at first to uh, be consistent with one another or go together, but when we see just how they fit, the gospel becomes all the more beautiful. I imagine the Apostle Paul thought somewhat along these lines when he wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Is that the Mueller's back there, by the way? <laughs> Brooke and Garrett. I kept looking over here, I'm like, is that? And then when Garrett walked in, I'm like, that is definitely, I thought you guys might be here, so, yeah, welcome back. Are you staying? You guys moving to back to Oklahoma? Okay, all right, all right, good to see you guys. Just a little distracted there. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. I I, I don't want us to be ashamed of the gospel. And, and, And so one of the ways that we can become people not ashamed is when we see how the puzzle, the puzzles of the gospel go together. There's a puzzle. There's lots of puzzles when we consider the gospel message, but when we see how the gospel goes together, when we see how God is true to his promise, his promise to save, even though he's never unjust in his promise to deal and punish sin, when we see how these things go together, we won't be ashamed of the gospel. We'll be eager to proclaim it. In the text before us this morning, there are three puzzles, three gospel puzzles that I hope that we can start to see the solution to. I'm calling them the puzzle that, uh, I'm calling these three puzzles, I'm calling these things puzzles because of the relationship between two things that seem to not always go together. And it's the relationship between God and some things. So, in the first case, the relationship between God and his people, it's a puzzle. It's a gospel puzzle. Second, the relationship between God and human sin creates quite a puzzle. And the third puzzle is the relationship between God and his law. So, God and his people, God and human sin, and God and his law. Let's take a look at these gospel puzzles together here in Romans 3. So as we've come to the third chapter of our study of Romans, we can see that Paul has now to deal with some questions that are raised from what he has said so far. The first question right here in verse 1, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? In other words, what about this relationship? between God and his people, the nation of Israel. Now, we ended in chapter 2, just look at the end of the last chapter, with the outrageous argument that Paul makes, the outrageous claim that he makes in verses 28 to 29. He said, no one is a Jew who is one merely outwardly. He says, a true Jew is one inwardly. It would seem that in these last two verses of the second chapter, Paul has almost dismissed out of hand the relationship between God and his people, the nation of Israel. So that is the reason that this question is raised in the third chapter. And it's a question I understand that you may not be asking when you ponder the gospel. When we ask, what is the gospel, when you begin to think about it, I understand that many of us probably don't bring up the nation of Israel as part of our understanding of the gospel. Many people today are tempted to conclude, in fact, that the church has replaced Israel in the divine economy and that there's simply no value left in the Jewish ethnicity or history. But notice, this is not at all how Paul answers. He says in verse 2 that there is a Jewish advantage. Indeed, look what he says, much in every way. Now, at this point, he only gives one example of Israel's advantage. He's going to come back to this issue and address it more thoroughly in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. So Paul has much more to say about this, and it's not incidental to his gospel. But for now, he simply cites here as an example of Jewish privilege the fact that it was the Jews who were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, when Paul uses that phrase, he certainly has in mind here the entirety of the Old Testament. But in calling them the oracles of God, he's giving to Old Testament history, the Old Testament scriptures, a unique status. He's saying that in the Old Testament, which is largely a story of Israel's ancient history, in the Old Testament, we have the special revelation of God. Though the Old Testament is essentially a story of Israel and God's interaction with them, Paul is saying and calling them the oracles of God, that this is also the special revelation of God's great promise to bring salvation to his people and through them to all of creation so yes of course there is a jewish advantage we can't dismiss israel when all the hopes of all that god has promised runs through god's people now if you're confused or suspicious about this just go back for a moment To a more familiar passage, I'm guessing, for many of us. The story of Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well of Samaria in John chapter 4. Do you remember the story? In the story, Jesus at one point says to this woman that the Jews worship what we know, he says. And then he says this. It's John chapter 4, verse 22. He says, for salvation is from the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews. Here in Romans, Paul is making it clear that he doesn't disagree with Jesus at all. In spite of what you might have thought he was saying in Romans chapter 2, he's saying, of course there's a Jewish advantage. Salvation is from the Jews. It is in Israel that God makes his saving plan known. If you want to know what the Bible is all about, you want to know what God's great promise is, through the Scriptures, you cannot ignore the history of the people of Israel. It is in Israel that the historical matrix of God's saving revelation emerges, as one New Testament scholar puts it. So, to be a Jew is to be in the center of the story of redemption. The history of Israel is not just the history of one unique people group on the face of the planet. it's the story of God rescuing and saving all of creation because God has promised to bring rescue for, for the world through the nation of Israel, through Israel. So we see that this issue is even more important than simply trying to harmonize what Jesus says in John 4 and what Paul has said in Romans chapter 2. If, in fact, there is no Jewish advantage then what does this tell us about God's gospel? Throughout the Old Testament, the emphasis has been on Israel as God's chosen people through whom, through whom God will bring blessing to the world. So, if we now just get rid of Israel, can God be trusted? Can the Old Testament scriptures be just ripped out of our Bibles? Or has God broken his promise to Israel and therefore to all of us? You see, the real question when it comes to what about God and his people is simply this. Can God himself be trusted? Why trust a God who breaks his promise? So let me make it maybe a little bit more close to home. What if we were to find out That the local church is irrelevant to God's mission in the world. It would not just be a shame for those of us who have invested so much time and money into the church. It would also mean, wouldn't it? It would also mean that we would have to read the entire Bible differently if, in fact... The church was insignificant insignificant to God's mission in the world. We would have to conclude as we read our Bibles, either that we've been misled by what it tells us about the church or that God has now changed his mind about it. And if so, can we trust our Bibles anymore? Could we even trust God anymore? Do you see the dilemma? The same thing is what Paul is dealing with here in Romans 3. And again, this raises the problem that Paul has highlighted back in chapter 2. What if some were unfaithful, he asks here in verse 3. Israel's story, of course, tells us that this was indeed the case. And this faithlessness is met time after time after time by the righteous judgment of God. Merely being a hearer of the law, not a doer, will not result in justification, according to Romans 2.13, but in judgment. Simply being a Jew, a member of God's covenant with Israel, would not spare anyone from God's wrath against sin. So it would seem then that the ongoing problem of faithlessness, of sin in Israel, of their faithlessness toward God, has created a puzzle. It has put God in an awkward position. Think of it. If God does not judge them for their sin simply because, well, you're my people. Then this will call into question God's justice. How can he be an impartial judge? But on the other hand, to punish Israel for their sin will call into question God's faithfulness to his promise to bring salvation to the world through Israel. How can God bring life to to the world through a people who have been sentenced to death. Do you see the puzzle? Do you see the puzzle? So it would seem then that the faithlessness of Israel has nullified the faithfulness of God. The two things cannot go together. If Israel is unfaithful, then God is going to end up being unfaithful. Again, if you can't quite feel the weight of that, put the question to the church. If God's promise is, according to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, that through the church, God will demonstrate his manifold wisdom. If that is true, if God has so attached himself to people who are unfaithful, like Israel, like us, then how will God be seen to be wise when his people are? are so foolish. It really is a problem. It's the reason, in fact, today, it's one reason at least, that many would simply say, they're good with God, but have no need for the church. You ever heard anybody say that? Not you, because here you are. But you've heard this. It sounds right to so many people, But what about God can you trust if you no longer see any value in the people that he calls the bride of Christ? Just think of it. How can you be good with God when essentially by saying you're done with the church, you're negating the very place that God says he's going to show his great wisdom? It's like sawing off the branch that you're standing on. And that's why when Paul comes to this puzzle and it creates this tension and he says, so does the faithlessness of God's people now nullify the faithfulness of God? He answers with the emphatic, verse 4, by no means, exclamation point. They didn't have exclamation points in Greek, so you get By no means, there's no way this can't possibly be true. Because again, a question like this, while appearing on the one hand rational, forgets something crucial, crucial about the nature of God. God cannot be limited or controlled by that which is outside of himself or his own will. God cannot be limited or controlled by that which is outside of himself Or of his will. So God is faithful. God is true, even if, listen, even if nobody believes him. So while it must be true, on the one hand, that salvation is from the Jews, since this is what God has promised, it is still true, first and foremost, that God is faithful. Yes, salvation is from the Jews. But guess what the Bible also says, Psalm 3, verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The story of salvation may be tied up with the story of Israel, but the story of salvation is not first and foremost Israel's story, it is God's story. It is God's story. Therefore, its success does not depend on the faithfulness of anyone other than God himself. So maybe we should linger over the puzzle a little longer. Surprised by it, confused by it, but there must be an answer. Now this takes us, of course, on to the next puzzle. Again, Paul's going to come back. We're going to have three chapters to deal with this problem of Israel and their faithlessness in Romans 9 through 11. I'm so glad we got time before we get there because it's a difficult passage of scripture. But It's coming. It's coming. There's one of the puzzles. But here's another puzzle we see in our text this morning. It's at the end of verse 4. Well, we're going to get there in verse 5. But at the end of verse 4, notice that Paul cites from Psalm 51. Now, this is a psalm, of course, of David's confession of his sin with Bathsheba. And in this confession, of course, he's asking, he's begging for God to show mercy. Mercy. And David says that his sin, like all sin, is fundamentally a sin against God and God alone. Remember that verse? Against you, you only have I sinned. Paul now cites from the next part of the psalm. Therefore, God is justified. He is righteous in his words. God prevails in his judgment against sin. In other words, the faithlessness of Israel does not show us that God is unfaithful. It shows us the opposite. In God's judgment against sin, we see more, not less, evidence for God's faithfulness. More evidence, not less, of God's righteousness. (laughs) But this creates a puzzle. It raises more questions in verses 5 through 8, and these are questions about the relationship between God and human sin, specifically God and his judgment of sin. Now, there's three main questions in verses 5 through 8, but they're all related to each other. The first is in verse 5. Here's the objection. But, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, isn't that what you just said? You just said the faithlessness of God's people doesn't minimize the righteousness of God. It shows it even more. So, the objection goes, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? You follow the question? The question is this. Let's assume, just for sake of argument, the objector says, okay, Paul, let's assume that if human unrighteousness, in particular the unrighteousness, the faithlessness of his people, does not nullify God's faithfulness. Then let's just assume that the hypocrisy of the church does not negate the fact that God is going to show his manifold wisdom in the church. Okay, let's, let's just take that for a moment. Let's, let's assume the argument, assume the point. So if God is shown to be the righteous one because he punishes sin, then can God really be righteous for punishing the things that display his righteousness? Did you follow that? If if you're like, what? Say that again? Well, if you're puzzled by that, it's probably because it's an obvious self-contradiction. It's a logical fallacy. It's a circular argument. It's something like, well, we need criminals to have criminal justice. So it's unjust to punish criminals. That's the argument. Paul all but apologizes for even giving such an argument the time of day when he says at the end of verse 5, I speak in a human way. This is like your high school teenager who is really good at just arguing I would not know this by experience at all. I'm just telling you, young parents, that in case this happens to you, Paul says, all right, I hear you. I hear you. It's an astoundingly weak argument. But some people want to use weak arguments like this in their reasoning against God. So for the second time in our passage, Paul uses the strong negation, by no means, The King James says, God forbid, right? Like, no, this is just, that's all you got to say. He rebuts the question by asking rhetorically, for then how could God judge the world? It's just a fundamental certainty of all theology that God, if he exists, is the absolute judge of the universe, or he couldn't be God in any meaningful sense. So you can't take away God's right to punish sin simply because sin manifests his righteousness. It's fundamental to who God is. You got that? All right. The next two questions come together in verses 7 and 8. And though they're related to the first absurd question, these questions are a bit more challenging to resolve. See, you may not have ever reasoned about God like verse 5. You're too sophisticated for that. You you didn't ever ask that question. But you have almost certainly reasoned like what we read in verses 7 and 8. Or if you haven't, you probably should have. Because if you haven't, you maybe have not grasped the radical gospel of God and his grace. Verse 7. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? In other words, how can God righteously judge anyone for their sin if such sin serves the purpose of magnifying God's glory, specifically the glory of his absolute justice? On the one hand, we have God who is faithful, true, and righteous. On the other hand, we have all humans. Including the Jews, including the church, faithless, liars, and unrighteous. You willing to accept that? The argument Paul has been making is that the gospel highlights and even magnifies these polar opposites. So the objection comes if the magnification of human sin is useful for magnifying the holy character of God, how can God condemn me as a sinner? Now, this question comes primarily from a Jewish objector who would not accept that they were every bit as sinful as the Gentiles without any ability to live up to God's holy standards expressed in the law. That's what Paul has argued in chapter 2. And this would be highly offensive to a devout Jew. By the way, it's highly offensive to pretty much anyone today too, and especially offensive to religious people. It leads to the explicit question that comes in verse 8. Well then, if that gospel is true, why not do evil that good may come? Have you ever asked that question? If you understand the gospel, it should make you at least ponder it. You see, if the gospel is correct, and none of us can even begin to live up to God's standard of holiness, then you should at least have the thought come in your mind, what's the point of even trying? Why not just give up and do what comes naturally? Do what your heart wants to do. That is, if Paul's gospel is to believed, do evil. Since apparently, Paul thinks, good comes from it. I remember one time we were exploring the radical grace of God in Christ with a small group. It was actually the core group. When we started this church, this was years ago, and a friend of mine who was an atheist was listening. We were noting the total depravity of all humans, the total necessity of God's grace, and my friend objected. He said, now, hey, wait just a moment. We don't need less effort at doing good in this broken world. Hmm. Paul apparently heard that objection quite often himself. He says in verse 8, some people slanderously charge him with teaching this, if not explicitly, then at least by implication. Now again, this is a puzzle that Paul will deal a little bit more thoroughly on a different side of things in chapter 6. But for now, he simply dismisses the charge since it probably is not being asked genuinely but with cynicism and rejection. It's a puzzle that someone's looking at and saying, these are contradictory, this makes no sense, away with the gospel. So for now, we will get nowhere by attempting to play these kinds of mind games or word games with God, rejecting the gospel of grace with the absurdity that it somehow means we end up sinning for God's benefit. We're gonna get nowhere if that's how we're gonna think of it. But do you see, do you at least see why objections like this are raised? It's because the gospel of grace is so incredibly scandalous. It's gloriously good news, but it's not gloriously good news until it first hits us hard in the nose right between the eyes. In the gospel, Paul has said the righteousness of God to save has been made plain. We like that part. But in the gospel, the righteousness of God to judge what the Bible calls the wrath of God has also been made made plain. And you and I don't care so much for that part, Especially, especially if we are at zero advantage, listen, zero advantage over anyone else at escaping God's wrath. But are we? Are we really? Are we at zero advantage in the face of God's righteous wrath? That's the question that's been before us in this text. And it leads us to this one last puzzle. Final puzzle. And it's the puzzle that concerns the relationship between God and his law. If anyone has any advantage in the face of God's righteous judgment against sin, then surely one will find that advantage in the keeping of God's law. If God is righteous to punish all sinners, then if there's any advantage for breaking his law, then if there's any advantage that anybody can have, then surely that advantage would be found in keeping God's law. Remember, Paul has said back in chapter 2, verse 13, it's not the hearers of the law who will be justified, but the doers of the law. But now in Romans 3, 9 through 20, what we read is startling, startling. It's got to hit you hard on the nose right between the eyes or the gospel is just not going to be that amazing to you. So let's look at it. When we look at God's law, what we find is that while it is good, the Bible will say repeatedly that the law of God is good. You can't read the 119th Psalm and not conclude that the law of God is good. It's good. It's very good. But when we we look at the law of God, what we find is while it is good, listen to me, it provides zero advantage for anyone when it comes to the righteous wrath of God. Hear me. God's laws, God's commands, God's ways are good. They should be studied. They should be poured over. We should delight in them. But if you think for a second that you will find in the law of God the slightest advantage over escaping God's wrath from anyone else in the whole history of humanity, you are seriously wrong. This has been Paul's sustained argument since at least Romans chapter 2, verse 12. And it's a point that we've got to hear and be convicted of repeatedly. You know why? Because most of us probably think we have an advantage, even if it's just marginal. You say, no, no, I, I don't. You, you, no. you probably do. You might be right, but you're probably wrong. Many Jews certainly thought they had an advantage, but Paul denies it outright. Look at verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? And look what he says. No, not at all. Now, wait just a minute. Wait just a minute. Didn't Paul just say in the very first verse of the third chapter, I hope you're reading your Bibles because this should trouble you. Paul just said in verse 1 that the Jew is very much at an advantage. Much in every way, he said. Now it seems that he is saying the exact opposite. So the solution to that little puzzle, puzzle within the puzzle, is probably in our translation. The ESV has an alternate reading. Are we at any advantage? Could be are we at any disadvantage? So if if you're not advantaged... Or disadvantaged, then you are at the same starting place. Or, I think, we probably should translate the Greek expression here, not altogether, or not in every respect. You see, when it comes to the matter of human sinfulness, no one is at any advantage, Paul says, because look what he says next: we have already charged that all. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. And then what he does next is he cites from various Old Testament scriptures to prove his point. There is no one who is righteous. Everyone has turned away from God, verses 11 to 14. The evidence is palpable in the violence that's acted out against one another, verses 15 to 17. These two things go together. When God is not feared, one's neighbor is not loved. And where we see violation of human dignity... It is just the outworking of the rejection of God himself. So when we look at God's law, what we must see is how guilty we are before him. This is what Paul says in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. There's no advantage before God's righteous judgment, because our guilt is proven beyond all possibility of doubt. And all of us, all of us are simply awaiting the sentence, the sentencing and final judgment. That's what we, that's what we find when we look into the law of God. And by the way, this is what God's law is supposed to do. If you read the law of God and you feel condemnation, you hear the sentence of judgment. The law of God is working. It's supposed to do that. And yet too many of us keep on talking. Too many of us keep on objecting. And when we do that, it's an indication that we still are not trusting in the gospel of grace. You may be a Christian this morning but I want you to embrace fully the gospel of grace. We are still fixated, too many of us, I know it's true because it's true for me, we are still fixated on a doctrine of merit. You see, how many of us are still hung up in the thinking that when things go well for us, it's because we are blessed. And when things do not go well for us, It's because God is angry. He doesn't love me. You feel that way? Will you admit it? Life is going good. I am blessed by God. It is a doctrine of merit. Reject it. I'm suffering. I am in pain. Things are not going well for me. I feel discouraged. God is against me. Reject it. It's a gospel of merit, and it is not good news. It's a sure sign that we are operating on the basis of merit. Why can God's blessing, I ask you, not be found in your pain? Why can we not see the deadly danger hidden? in our prosperity. It's because we evaluate our lives on a system of works and reward. The Lord gives when he's happy at me and he takes when he's angry. Instead, if we're operating on grace, our response must be the Lord gives and the Lord takes in his sovereign freedom. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You can clap. I like that. See, sometimes I just think that may have been accidental, but it shouldn't have been. Let's go. Verse 20 brings our passage to a close. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, do you see the puzzle? Do you see the puzzle? Back in Romans chapter 2, verse 13, Paul said, and did not deny, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. And when we preached on this two weeks ago, I said, whoa, wait, wait just a minute, Romans 3.20. So here we are, Romans 3.20. Paul has just said, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. You read your Bible and just say, what in the world? Do you see this and say, this is a puzzle, and oh, God, help me see the answer. You see, this verse is also true because here's why. The law is not able to give us what it demands. God's law does not give us what it demands. You see, the law is powerless to save. The law comes with no power to rescue. What the law does, though, the law is not therefore pointless. Don't make that mistake. Oh, don't make that mistake. You need Romans 6, 7, and 8 if you think... Sin that grace may abound. You need, oh, you are still not operating in the gospel. You don't know how radical it is. But don't make the mistake in thinking, well, I'll find salvation in the law. You will not. You will not. The law is not therefore pointless. It prepares us to receive the only power that can save. Now, what is that power? Power. What is that power that can save? It will become explicit in the last verses of chapter 3 that we'll study next week. The solution to the puzzle will be made explicit. So I hope you come back next week, Lord willing, and let's see it. But you won't be able to receive this power for salvation if you don't first consider the puzzles that we've encountered in these verses. You see, it's when we see the relationship that God has with his people, we see that the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, promises us what was promised to Israel. What are you hoping God will do for you? What's the promise you want to do? Is the promise you're looking for just the, the raise at the job? To be able to buy or sell that house? is the is the promise you're hoping for some temporary goodness in your life that will soon pass when the days of your life is over is all you can hope for a gospel that promises heaven with death still reigning You see, if you see the relationship between God and his people, you should be hoping for what was promised to Israel. What made Abraham leave his homeland. He was looking for a better city. He was looking for a resurrection from the dead. Yes, heaven, but only because heaven is now on earth. We get this gospel all mixed up because we've just eliminated all of God's promises to Israel, which are very much earthly. Let's get it right. And it's when we see the relationship that God has with human sin that we see that Jesus promises to set us free from sin, but that it is precisely in this freedom, in this freedom, that God is most glorified in us, and forever we will sing praise to the Lamb who was slain. Set me free from my human sin. And it's when we see the relationship that God has with his law that we will finally see Jesus is the end of the law, not because he does away with it, but because he fulfills it. And in our union with him, we find the power to be truly changed into his image. When we put the pieces of the puzzle together, it is Jesus and his gospel that is seen most clearly. And for that, we have to wait till next week.